This is Science Moab, a radio show exploring the science and learning about the scientists from Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. I'm Christina, and on today's show, we talk about the diversity of birds that live along the rivers of this region. It's a good show recorded for you from Moab, Utah. Stay tuned. Riparian areas are really important for birds, generally. 1% of the western landscape is made up of riparian habitat, but these areas support 10 times more breeding and migratory birds than surrounding upland areas. Today on Science Moab, we're speaking with Sean Mahoney. Sean is a PhD candidate at Northern Arizona University in Flagstaff. There, he studies animals, and specifically birds, that live along the banks of the rivers here on the Colorado Plateau. He explores their songs, colors, and how these birds interact with changing riparian environments. We begin with Sean discussing the numbers and types of birds that come through and use these riparian areas here in southeast Utah some common migrants that come through southeast Utah include birds like western tanagers, a lot of warblers, yellow-wormed warblers come through here, Wilson's warblers, McGilvery's warblers. Cedar waxwings are really common during migration. And then what we found, particularly on the San Juan River, was tons of migratory willow flycatchers. We would do surveys early in the summer months in May, And we would get hundreds of detections of willow flycatchers. But when we came back in June or July, we wouldn't get any detections of willow flycatchers. So they're not breeding on the San Juan, but they are using it as migratory habitat. And that's that's still really important. There are still a lot of birds that do breed along particularly the San Juan River. Spotted towhees are super common. They are almost in every habitat that we surveyed along the San Juan River. We had a spotted towhee. Yellow-breasted chats are really common. Warbler species like yellow warblers and Lucy's warblers, they're very common along the San Juan. Birds like blue grosbeaks and black-headed grosbeaks are definitely really common. Super loud, gregarious birds. And then birds like black chin hummingbirds are super common and, and Cooper's hawks as well. Riparian areas are really important for birds generally. 1% of the western landscape is made up of riparian habitat. But these areas support 10 times more breeding and migratory birds than surrounding upland areas. Are we talking about mostly birds that are similar in their size and life history? Or are we talking about a diversity of birds that have different niches and ecosystems? All the birds that that I mentioned are very different, have very different biology, and serve very different ecological roles. For example, the Cooper's hawk, that is obviously a hawk, and so that's a predatory bird, and so that's going to be feeding on other birds and mammals. And then a bird like a black-chinned hummingbird, that's going to serve a very different function. That's going to be a bird that eats nectar. It's going to be really important for pollinating flowers, across the landscape. And then many of the other birds that I described are insectivores. Most of the warblers are insectivorous, meaning they eat insects. 
And then birds like the grosbeaks and the towhees, they're granivores. They eat seeds, and they might be important for passing seeds around, moving seeds around the environment. So yeah, these birds are they're serving very different ecological roles. They have very different biology. So it's a very diverse group of birds that we see along the San Juan River. You went into it a little bit with the willow flycatcher, but are a lot of these birds passing through seasonally? Or are we talking about birds and communities of birds that are sticking around the San Juan most of the year? We haven't really looked at that except with willow flycatchers. But at least, you know, I can speak to the, the flycatchers. The San Juan River really seems like an important stopover site for flycatchers. And what that means is during their migration, they need to refuel, they need to eat, they need to rest. And the San Juan River appears to be a really important migratory pathway or stopover site for willow flycatchers. I would expect that a lot of these other birds are also especially uh, some of these warblers, yellow-rumped warblers, Wilson's warblers, I would expect that they're also using the San Juan River as a stopover habitat. So when these birds are in these riparian habitats, what does that relationship between birds and riparian areas look like? As I mentioned earlier, these, these birds have very different functional roles. So, for example, again, the, the black chin hummingbird, that's a really common hummingbird species, along the San Juan River, and that's really important for pollinating flowers. Other birds like uh, spotted towhees and the grosbeaks, blue grosbeaks and black-headed grosbeaks, a lot of plants do require seeds to be passed through the gut to become scarified in order to germinate. And if there's not something to eat and then pass that seed, then that plant might not be able to germinate. So these, these gross beaks might be really important in terms of allowing seeds to germinate. The San Juan River is very, as you know, very uh, mosquito-y and very buggy, can be very buggy. And so a lot of these insectivorous insects, uh, particularly flycatchers, might be serving uh, an important role as pest control. Yeah, eating these uh, insect, quote-unquote, pests, that might be really unpleasant for people recreating along the San Juan River. Do we know if there are species that nest along the San Juan River? They certainly do. Our group, we didn't do any nest searching at all. But that said, during our surveys, we did find nests. And then also the fact that we were detecting birds throughout the breeding season suggests that they were breeding there. So again, to bring up the willow flycatcher we detected them during the putative migration period and then not during the breeding period. And so we infer from that that the willow flycatcher isn't breeding on the San Juan. We found black chin hummingbird nests. We know Cooper's hawks are nesting along the San Juan. We found great horned owl nests, yellow-breasted chat nests. So birds are, are nesting along the San Juan, even if a, a study hasn't rigorously tested that. Do we have a sense of how far inland these bird species are using the landscape from these kind of river arteries? It's a really good question. Our surveys were restricted to the riparian area, the strip of vegetation around the river. That said, we would still detect species in the upland. 
In our study, we were detecting canyon wrens and rock wrens that are pretty tied to the upland. We would detect things like black-throated sparrows, which are also kind of more in the upland shrubby habitat. As far as the riparian obligate species, they, I don't think, would be moving into the upland to forage because in, in that riparian zone, there's an abundance of food. That's kind of why they're in that area to begin with. But I think what's interesting is that some of these upland species actually come into the riparian area to exploit the food resources that are available in riparian habitats. You know, riparian habitats are not just important for the birds that are using them. It's also important for the upland community as well, because those birds are moving in, at least for foraging purposes. So a lot of the changes that um, have happened along the river that we hear about often are tamarisk coming in. And so I was wondering if you could talk about that, but also I know your work has specifically looked at Russian olive. So thinking about these two main invasives and talking about how they impact the bird species. Both tamarisk and Russian olive are super common in the Western United States, and they're really common along rivers, particularly in the Southwest. The interesting thing about tamarisk and Russian olive is most of the research focus has been placed on understanding tamarisk, understanding the biology and understanding the ecology of tamarisk. And there's been a ton of work trying to understand how tamarisk affects birds. And it seems to be a species-specific response. One group of birds that really drops out of tamarisk habitat are things like woodpeckers. The thought is that tamarisk structurally can't support the cavity nests that woodpeckers need. So structurally, tamarisk is basically like eliminating that group. But there's a lot of research that shows that tamarisk is suitable habitat for insectivorous birds. There's something about the structural complexity of tamarisk that insectivores seem to really benefit from. One of the things is that there are three obligate insects that are associated with tamarisk, the biocontrol tamarisk beetle, tamarisk leafhoppers, and tamarisk weevils. And what we found is that insectivorous birds don't really like the tamarisk beetles, but they eat a lot of tamarisk leafhoppers and tamarisk weevils. And in these habitats, particularly tamarisk leafhoppers, can be super abundant. And so there seems to be, you know, enough food in these areas to support insectivorous birds. Another group that drops out of tamarisk habitat is hawks and eagles. And the thought, again, is that tamarisk structurally can't support big nests that these birds need. So again, the response, at least from birds, to tamarisk habitat seems to be species-specific. Russian olive again, is less well-known. And that's why we sought out to at least provide some data to get some focus on how birds respond to Russian olive. And the San Juan was kind of the obvious place to do it because Russian olive is extensively naturalized along the river. We were doing these surveys for willow flycatchers and yellow-billed cuckoos, and we were just noticing that there was just so much Russian olive along the river. There's a lot of work on tamarisk and how birds respond to tamarisk, but what about Russian olive? And we pretty quickly learned that there wasn't a whole lot understood about it. 
And there were a bunch of studies done in the 70s and the 80s, and then a few studies in the 2000s that looked at how birds respond to Russian olive. But particularly in the Southwest, there weren't that many studies. And so we thought, okay, this is our opportunity to provide some data to try to answer this question of how do birds respond to Russian olive. In thinking about Russian olive, we've heard so much, like you keep saying, about tamarisk. Do you have a sense for what proportion of our rivers or the San Juan particularly has been invaded by tamarisk versus Russian olive? I would say on the San Juan, particularly on the upper reach of the San Juan, so above Mexican hat, it's dominated by Russian olive. There are definitely native patches, native cottonwoods and willows and tamarisk, but there is just so much Russian olive. (laughs) There are no purely native dominated patches. It's We have patches that are 95 to 99% cover of Russian olive, but we don't see those same percentages for cottonwoods and willows. The native sites are always co-occurring with, with Russian olive and tamarisk. Below Mexican hat, then that's when tamarisk really, really starts to come in as kind of the, the most dominant non-native as far as more generally in, in the Western U.S., tamarisk is considered the second most dominant woody plant species in riparian habitat. And Russian olive is the third or fourth, depending on who you talk to. So they are definitely dominant players in riparian habitats in the Western U.S. So along the San Juan, what has your study found about how the Russian olive is impacting bird communities. We conducted presence absence points in habitats that or in study sites that differed in the amount of Russian olive. Basically, we we had these established uh, transects that we walked because we were doing these surveys for willow flycatchers and yellow-billed cuckoos. And while we were doing that, we would also record every bird that we heard or saw while walking this transect. What we found was that sites that were mostly dominated by Russian olive had lower species richness and lower number of functional groups. And in our study, we defined functional groups as basically their diet. So whether they ate insects, whether they ate seeds, whether they ate fruit, whether they were nectarivores eating nectar or carnivores. And so Russian olive-dominated habitats had lower numbers of functional groups relative to these native, non-native mixed sites. And then we also just looked at the overall species composition of mixed habitats versus Russian olive habitats. And what we found was that the species compositions were different between those two. So the species composition is different. Could that be a good thing? Is that more diversity in an area? So yeah, that's a good question. What does that mean? We know that Russian olive is a drought-tolerant plant. We also know that the Southwest is becoming hotter and drier, and it's projected to continue to do that. And so given those two pieces of information we expect Russian olive to continue to naturalize, not just along the San Juan, but along other river systems. 
Russian olive is also shade tolerant, which means that it can grow in the understory of native cottonwoods and native willows. And we know that cottonwoods and willows are drought intolerant. So if we lose those native species due to increasing drought conditions, Russian olive is going to be in the understory ready to take advantage of that void. Our group was interested in birds. And so what this suggests is that given increasing temperatures in the southwest, we expect more Russian olive habitats and because of that altered bird communities. You know, we know that along river systems, these are really important breeding areas. They're really important stopover sites for birds. And if we start losing those habitats and fewer birds are able to breed or stop over there during migration, this could be a real conservation concern for native birds. Can you describe what the two bird species that you were looking at specifically, what they look like? Willow flycatchers are near and dear to my heart. That's my study species for my PhD program right now. And they are a small songbird that's pretty drab looking. They are gray on top and they have somewhat of a, a yellow breast and belly. But they're an Empidnax flycatcher. And Empidnax flycatchers are notorious for being very difficult to identify in the field. The most reliable way to identify Empidnax flycatchers is based on their song. And so if you're ever along the San Juan River during migration, you might hear the Willow flycatcher song, which sounds like Fitzbew. That's the mnemonic Fitzbew. And then we were also doing surveys for the yellow-billed cuckoos. And they're a much bigger bird. They have a yellow bill, given the name, yellow-billed cuckoos. They're very secretive. Uh, they behave much differently than willow flycatchers. They do sing. They have this long knocker call, is what it's called. And so they can be very gregarious, but you typically don't see them. You usually only hear them. They can be very hard to find in the field. And we actually didn't find any yellow-billed cuckoos along the San Juan. You know, the tamarisk has had a biocontrol release to try to control the spread of tamarisk in the southwest and west in general. Is anything like that going on for Russian olive? Yeah, that was part of the reason why we wanted to jump into a Russian olive project. I had gone to a meeting where I heard that there was a candidate for Russian olive biocontrol. It was during this period where I was trying to develop my dissertation project, and I was very interested in non-native plants and how they affect native bird species. And when I heard that there was this biocontrol for Russian olive, I just thought, man, we don't really know much about the ecology of Russian olive and how animals and other plants might respond to this biocontrol. What we saw with the Tamara system is particularly bird biologists becoming very concerned about beetle kill of tamarisk because there were a lot of studies that showed that birds will nest in tamarisk, even the willow flycatcher. And so there became this great concern about tamarisk biocontrol removing important habitat along rivers. And so I just thought before we release biocontrol for Russian olive, it's going to be really important to understand the ecology of it. And it's still way out the biocontrol for Russian olive. But the candidate species is a, a mite that attacks the flowers. 
And so it's going to be a little different than the tamarisk system because the tamarisk beetle actually eats the leaves of tamarisk, so it defoliates the tree. The Russian olive biocontrol is supposed to be just a way to cut back on the reproduction because it damages the flowers. They can't become pollinated. They can't go to seed. And so it actually doesn't kill the plant. It just prevents the spread of it. And the idea there is that if we can slow down the spread of Russian olive, then we can go in with more specific removal techniques. With the large-scale changes that have happened along the riverways, along the San Juan and all, all rivers in the southwest and Four Corners area, and with climate change, it seems unlikely, honestly, that the riparian communities that were there before a tamarisk or before a Russian olive would come back or flourish under these conditions after these invasive species have really altered so much of the soil and the, even just the chemistry of the region. And so what kind of conservation efforts could happen for these birds if they're losing this habitat that, in the face of these large-scale changes? I think the, the most important thing is the hydrology of the rivers. And like you said, the, the soil chemistry, the, the soil ecology is completely altered by these non-natives as well. But what I repeatedly hear from geomorphologists and hydrologists is that dams have completely altered what native vegetation has evolved with in the Southwest. And that promotes the establishment of invasives like Russian olive and tamarisk. And so I think that it's kind of hard to say this, but I think it's true. You know, we can go in and we can do all sorts of restoration and, and plant as many willows and cottonwoods and remove as much Russian olive and tamarisk as we want. But if those plants don't receive the water necessary to become established, it's just going to be a lost cause. I think that's something that scientists working in riparian ecology really, particularly in the Southwest, they really need to share this idea with the public and with policymakers because that's what these plants need, uh, willows and cottonwoods. They need a lot of water at just the right time of year in order for seeds to germinate. I think that's obviously a huge undertaking to knock down all these dams. And I'm not necessarily saying that, but I think that, you know, maybe promoting policies where we do experimental flows, where we can release a bunch of water that will allow native cottonwoods and willows to, to germinate. I think that is one way where we could still keep dams, but also promote a really important conservation effort. So I see that as a, as a major challenge for riparian ecology. And when I go to meetings, I, I make sure I always talk about that and at least bring it up. And other scientists are doing it too. And so I think that's really important, yeah. Are there more studies that you have planned or others or have planned to understand these habitats along the San Juan River specifically? Definitely. Probably too many ideas. I'm trying to finish my dissertation, but I have all these other side projects that I want to get involved with. One thing that we really want to do is look at bird productivity in these sites. You know, we just looked at presence absence of, of bird species in these habitats, 
And so we didn't look at things like productivity, abundance, density, nest searching. Those become really important data sets to fully understand Russian olive ecology. Those are some obvious next steps for us is to to go in and, and really rigorously quantify bird use of Russian olive habitats relative to these more native mixed sites. We also want to broaden it to include other taxa, not just birds, because birds aren't the only ones that are using these habitats. So when I was driving up today from Flagstaff, we were driving along the San Juan River, and I was talking to my colleague about how it would be really cool to do reptile surveys, amphibian surveys in these areas, because there's tons of lizards. Birds are really easy to identify and study because they're, you know, active during the day, they're colorful, they sing, they're loud, they're, they're just easy to survey for. And so some of these other taxa, like mammals and, and reptiles, are a little bit more difficult, but they're still a really important part of the ecology of the system. I'm not sure when that's going to happen, but we're very interested in doing that. What first got you interested in studying birds or ecology in general? In middle school, I was part of this really cool program. It was called Watershed, and it was basically a, a place-based um, integrative program where all of our subjects were based around the watershed that we lived in. And it was the Darby Creek watershed. I grew up outside of Philadelphia in Pennsylvania. Darby Creek watershed has a rich history with Native Americans. There was a lot of Revolutionary War history that happened there. And there's also just really cool ecology and biology that's happening there. And so that program really developed this complete sense of riparian ecology for me. And how important riparian areas are not just for organisms like plants and animals and birds, but also for people. And so that was developed at a very young age for me. What do you enjoy about being a scientist? So my advisor at NAU, Tad Timer, told me that to understand the world and to ask questions is this fundamentally human characteristic. I think that science does that better than anything else. And that's why I want to be a scientist, because I am constantly asking questions about the natural world and what our role is in the natural world. I think science is the best way to answer those questions. Well, Sean, thank you so much for this interview. It's been fantastic to hear about the San Juan River and all of the ecology that's happening there. Thanks, Christina. Thanks for having me. To listen to this interview with Sean Mahoney again or any of our past shows, visit kzmu.org, sciencemoab.org, or anywhere you get your podcasts. The music is by Jeremy Spaulding. Funding is provided by the BYU Charles Red Center for Western Studies, and the show is produced by Christina Young, Peggy Hodgkins, and KZMU.